You can take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter 10, what was just read for us this morning. If you want to use a pew Bible, you're welcome to. You'll find it on page 451. And if you don't have a Bible, or if you don't have a Bible that you would read, um, if we would encourage you, go ahead and take home with you that pew Bible that you have right there in front of you. Uh, if you'd like to use that, we'd be happy to have you uh, take that home with you um, so that you can have a, a copy of God's Word and be able to read that yourself. Psalm chapter 10 this morning. Today we're going to begin a 13-sermon series in the book of Psalms. We're starting in Psalm 10. You may be wondering why. Uh, because I was looking back where this church family had left the Psalms previously, and uh, you left off in Psalm chapter 9 on September 11th, 2016. <laughs> so we're going to start in Psalm 10 as we continue to work our way through uh, the Psalms little by little. Before we look into Psalm 10 specifically, I thought I would just give us some background to help us appreciate uh, this genre of Scripture together a little bit more. The Psalms, uh, some of this you're going to be, some of you are familiar with, some of you this might be new, but the Psalms are not written by one author. They're written by a variety of authors. Uh, some of those authors include David or Asaph, the sons of Korin, Heman, Ethan, Solomon, and Moses. And some of the Psalms we don't have a superscription of an author, they're just anonymous. The book of Psalms as a whole is often organized into five parts or five books. I know sometimes that can be confusing. You have a book of Psalms divided into five sub-books. Book one, which is where we are at this morning, is Psalms 1 through 41. And it is almost entirely made up of Psalms that are written by David. Only Psalm 10 and Psalm 33 lack a superscription that attribute those psalms to David. Psalm 10, which is what we're looking at this morning, probably was written by David because a lot of scholars think that Psalm 9 and 10 went together as a unit, and Psalm 9 does say that it was a psalm of David. This series in psalms that we're planning to work our way through, uh, we're going to go up through Psalm 22, so don't fret, we're not going to go all through 150 of them uh, here over the next 13 weeks. We're going to end in Psalm 22, which is going to take us halfway through that first book. The Psalms are poetry. I think that's pretty obvious. We kind of understand that. A lot of you might have a Bible that shows the text formatted a little differently, meaning it's not kind of nice uh, with the edges of the, of the lines all lined up. It shows it kind of written in a poetic form. That's to indicate to you that this is poetry. This means we need to understand and interpret the Psalms as poetry. And you would read a love poem differently than you would read an article out of the Encyclopedia Britannica, Right? And so we need to come to this text, to the text of Psalms, with some of that understanding. So, for instance, poetry, uh, biblical poetry, often uses uh, tools like parallelism, which is saying the same thing with different words, and it uses a lot of imagery, which are word pictures, to communicate spiritual truth. There's two general categories of Psalms. This, not, not every Psalm fits into these categories, but just two general categories for you to kind of identify them as you read them. There's poems of lament. And there's poems of praise. So poems of lament would include things like pain and confusion and anger, which, by the way, poems of lament are more densely found in the first three books of Psalms. And the poems of lament are prayers that are often uttered in times of distress. That's why they're lamenting. But it's not only uh, poems of lament. We also have poems of praise, which are full of joy and celebration and thankfulness. And you're going to find more of those densely populated in the latter two, two books of, of the Psalms, Psalms uh, books 4 and 5. Now, not every psalm is just one or the other. 
And that's the glory of the Psalms, that you have Psalms that are lament, but those Psalms of lament are punctuated by these utterances of praise to the Lord. It's kind of this confidence of to, in towards God comes out uh, periodically even through those Psalms of lament. And so what's the point of all this? Well, I think it would be helpful for us to understand the terrain ahead of us before we start hiking on it together as a church family. But also there's some implications that we can draw from the Psalms just kind of as a whole. And the, the, this is kind of obvious, but as we look in Psalm 10, which, by the way, is a psalm of lament, as we look into this, we need to understand that God's people don't ignore pain. And the Psalms put that right up in front of us like a big billboard. God's people don't ignore pain. Hardship and distress and sorrow, even anger, are part of the emotional spectrum of God's people. Another implication that we can draw just from the Psalms as a whole is that faith always looks forward. That's a theme you're going to see regularly as you read through the Psalms. There's a movement in Psalms. There's progression. Faith moves from pain through confusion and and, and out of anger into an enduring God-centered hope. And the Psalms are going to prove to us that God-centered hope produces joy and then Christian joy exists in God's people even when we experience circumstances of deep lament. So Psalm 10, a a psalm of lament. We can organize this psalm into three sections that are aimed at answering the questions that the psalmist writes in the first verse. These sections, the first section is verses 2 through 11. It's where we find the psalmist just struggling through bewildered amazement. In the second section, you're going to find in verses 12 through 15, where the author breaks out into bold prayer. And in the third section, verses 16 through 18, where we hear the, that, that anthem of confidence in God's rule. And that's my hope that our hearts are going to move through that similar progression of wrestling with some bewildered amazement at the injustices in life, finding ourselves leaning into the Lord through bold prayer, and then finding our hearts assured with confidence in his rule. So we're going to start where the psalm begins, that first section, verses 2 through 11, with bewildered amazement. Bewildered amazement. Psalm, 10's begin, psalm 10 begins with two honest questions. You can see them there in the, in the first verse. And as we go through this series in Psalms, I think we're going to grow to appreciate the realism and the honesty that the Psalms just put right in front of us. Look at these questions that the psalmist asks. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? As a Christian, have you ever had questions like this appear in your own soul? Why is the author writing this? Well, the answer to that is found in the rest of of that first section, verses 2 through 11. And in these verses, the psalmist is writing about how the wicked behave as if God doesn't exist, or at least God doesn't care. The wicked are people who scheme evil, and they boast of evil, and they're greedy. In verse 3, it says that they actually renounce the Lord. At the end of verse 3, they're greedy for gain, they're curses, and they renounce the Lord. In fact, in verse 4, we learn that the world view of the wicked is, you see that in verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are what? There is no God. That's, that's the wicked's world view. There is no God. This is a kind of atheism. It's not an official atheism in the sense of denying his existence entirely. It might be categorized as a practical or functional atheism, which means that a practical atheist would admit the theoretical possibility of God, but in his behavior, he would affirm that God's existence doesn't matter. So the practical atheist or the functional atheist admits God in his creed, but 
denies that, it, it denies that admission in how he functions or how he behaves. And that's how the wicked are described in Psalm 10. People who behave the way they do in part because they don't think God cares. So what's so troubling about all of this is not only that the wicked behave wickedly, but what's troubling for the psalmist here is that the wicked seem to prosper in their wickedness or because of their wickedness. That's what the psalmist is wrestling with. Why, God, are you so far away? Don't you care, God? I mean, you have wicked people behaving wickedly and it's like they're advancing in life as a result of their choices. They're not just arrogant, verse 6, but they're prosperous because of their arrogance, or so it seems. They speak evil, verse 7, but it's not just that they're speaking evil, it's as if their evil speech is what seems to be moving them forward in life and giving them opportunity and advancement. Verses 8 and 9 describe the wicked as people who lurk and pounce on the helpless and as, as unsuspecting prey, that the weak and the oppressed in the world are the ones that the, the wicked exploit for their own gain. And what's so troublesome is not just that exists, but it seems that the wicked are advancing their cause and are finding success in life because of their exploitation of the oppressed and the helpless. You see in verse 10, here's the result of the wicked. The helpless are crushed. They sink down and fall by his might. So in verse 11, again, the worldview that stands behind what the wicked are doing is that he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. This is the worldview that is standing behind the operation of the wicked. So for the wicked in Psalm 10, it's as if God doesn't exist and they think that God doesn't care or he doesn't know what they're doing and so it doesn't matter. And the righteous are troubled by this deeply. It seems like God doesn't care. God is standing far off. It's like God has hidden his face from these evil atrocities that are going on in the world. And so, I think I need to make sure that I clarify here about who the wicked are. So for our understanding today, we would, we would understand that the wicked in this text are everyone who does not have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Now, you're not a Christian. You may think that you're okay because you're not doing actively something like this. You're not exploiting the helpless or you're not using, you know, you're not uttering lies to accomplish greedy gain and you might think, hey, you're Okay. But as you look through the whole story arc of the scriptures and its redemptive plan of God, we understand that the wicked are all those, are all who defy God's rule in their life by refusing to bow the heart of worship and adoration to Jesus Christ. You don't become a Christian because of the way you treat others. So, for instance, this psalm is, is describing the moral bankruptcy of the wicked, but the aim of this psalm is not moralistic teaching so that everybody who hears it can kind of clean themselves up and make different, better choices in life. The aim of this psalm really is teaching that the radical change that God creates through faith in Jesus Christ is what causes Christians to live out a Christian ethic. So if you're not a Christian, I want you to make sure that you don't get confused and think that Psalm 10 is denouncing the way of the wicked as if you can change your life on your own efforts. That's impossible. The only way to become a Christian is it's not through high moral living. The way to become a Christian is by treasuring and depending entirely in the perfect life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Then and only then will you have God's strength to work in you to live out this Christian ethic. Which, by the way, the, the idea of deceit can come out different ways. You are deceived if you think that you can earn favor with God through your actions. So the Christians here today, do you ever find yourself wrestling with your own faith in a way similar to the psalmist? You look around and you see so much evil, you see injustice, you see oppression, and you wonder if, why, or if God is far away, what... What, is, what reasons could God possibly have 
Are you ever perplexed when you see faithful Christians experience deep suffering all the while at the same time you see others pursue wickedness with seemingly endless supplies of strength and success? I'm going to read a quote that one Bible scholar summarized the tension of faith that we find in this passage. This is Peter Craigie in the Word Biblical Old Testament Commentary. He writes this, It's easy to say that God exists, to affirm that morality matters, to believe in divine and human justice, but the words carry a hollow echo when the empirical reality of human living indicates precisely the opposite. The reality appears to be that the atheists have the upper hand, that morality really does not matter and that justice is dormant. At the moment that this reality is perceived in all its starkness, the temptation is at its strongest to jettison faith, morality, and belief in justice. What good is belief in a moral life which appear to be so out of place in the harsh realities of an evil world? Indeed, would there not be a certain wisdom in the oppressed joining ranks with the oppressors? This is the reality of life that Psalm 10 pushes right up in front of us this morning. This tension of faith. So what are, what are Christians to do then when, from our perspective, the wicked prosper and the wickedness, the righteous suffer? How are Christians to respond to these types of problems in life? Well, that's what Psalm 10 is here for. Psalm 10 is acting in some ways like a, like a, like a guide to help Christians navigate these rocky reefs of life's apparent injustices that cause us to look up at God in bewildered amazement. Psalm 10 examines this relationship between the success of the wicked and the existence of divine justice. And that's a difficult human riddle to, for us to consider. And so I don't want you to be disappointed. Psalm 10 is not going to resolve that riddle. Psalm 10 is not going to remove the problem of suffering in this world, but it will refocus us on God. Psalm 10 will refocus us on God as we wrestle with this riddle. And that's where the psalm takes us next. We've been kind of listening to this psalm utter his bewildered amazement and, and our own hearts echo in some of that bewilderment along with the psalmist. But the second section is where we move next, where we find boldness in prayer, and that's verses 12 through 15. He starts out in verse 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. The author doesn't have a logical or rational explanation for what he sees. There's no neat and tidy answer. But what he does have is the assurance that God does indeed care despite what is happening around him. God is the one who acts in power to help the afflicted. Verse 12, right? He says he's crying out to God, forget not the afflicted. Why is he praying that? Because the psalmist believes that God is the one who does help the afflicted, who can help the afflicted. And so he cries out in prayer to the God who helps. This author is quenching his bewildered amazement with this rhetorical question in verses 13 and 14, which is an expression of what he believes. He says, Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? And the psalmist is just pondering the absurdity of the wicked. Why do they say this? Why? Because, continue reading, But you, God, do see. For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself, and you have been the helper of the fatherless. Here the psalmist is proclaiming truth. This is propositional truth that the psalmist is hanging on to on the cliff of, his, of this tension of faith, reminding himself of what is true despite what circumstances seem to be showing him. So contrary to how we might feel about what, what we see going on around us, God does care for the afflicted and he does know about every wicked act. 
So this, by the way, is the kind of heavenly father that we have. So here in a Father's Day, we celebrate all that we know to be good and true about Christian fatherhood. On this Father's Day, we need to remember the gift that Christians, that we have been given through Jesus Christ of having a God Almighty as our loving Heavenly Father. And we are assured that He does see and know every act of injustice, every wicked act. It does not go unknown by Him. And because we don't see in our perspective an immediate response to those wicked acts, it does not mean that we have a Father who is not good, no. What we just sang together is kind of a creed that we have a good, good Father. That is true. The Scriptures present that over and over again. And in God, we have a Father who knows everything, who cares deeply for His children. None of us have had a Father like God. None of us have had a Father who knows every evil thing that's ever happened to us. And none of us have had a Father physically who is able to right all of those wrongs perfectly. But in God, we do have that kind of Father. An advocate of the fatherless, verse 14 and 18. Now, this second section, interestingly, it uses many, it reuses many of the words that describe the wicked in the previous section. And I think the point of it is that the author, I think, wants us to realize that despite how it may seem to us, God really does see the wicked and he is aware of all the injustice that happens. So I'm going to kind of describe this for you. So look at verse 7. Here, the wicked are talking about, you know, he's describing the wicked as his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. And again, the psalmist here in that section was bewildered and amazed that it seems like God doesn't see that. But look at God's response in verse 14. But you, God, you do see. You note mischief and vexation. Why does God take note of it? That you may take it into your hands. And that idea is poetic and talking about that's a sign of God's power. God is gripping the sword, so to speak, of his righteous judgment. And he is not overlooking that. You help the help to you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Or look down in, uh, over in verse 8. Right? The wicked are described as people who sit in ambush in the villages and hiding places. They, they're seeking to, to murder the innocent and take advantage of the helpless. What is God's response? Verse 14, To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. So although the injustices of the wicked are not necessarily immediately corrected in this life, that does not mean that God's justice has failed or that it will never be felt. The Apostle Peter writes about a similar theme in his second letter when he is, he is assuring his readers this, that do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So here's the truth of the matter. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. I'm just going to pause there. Some of the wrestle that we have in our faith is we have an urgency for God's action. But remember, God is eternal. And because we think something is slow does not mean it is slow. And, and this is a poor illustration, but it helps a little bit, I think. How many times have you been exasperated with the impatience of a child? Right? They're going to have a friend come over. Come over at like 4 in the afternoon. And they start asking you at 7.30, when are they coming over? Are they coming over yet? And all day long, you're just, no, you got five more hours. That doesn't mean anything to a little kid. Five minutes, five hours, just, what? When are they coming? And there's this exasperation. Why? Because of the urgency of a child for something to come about that they're longing for, and yet you as a parent or caregiver kind of chuckle at the immaturity of this urgency for what you know is going to happen. And yet sometimes we like to judge God as if he is our peer. 
The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord will come. This is his promise. So if you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to think very carefully about how you perceive your standing before God. Maybe you think you're getting away with your wicked choices, your, your, your acts of oppression or, or injustices, because you think, hey, it's been going well for you so far, so, I mean, why should you really be worried about this idea of God? But I want to be careful that you don't confuse God's mercy and kindness to you as if he's giving you permission or that he doesn't care. You know, God's kindness and forbearance towards you in that he has withheld judgment on you thus far is, is not tacit permission or, or, or a, 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 an approval of your life. It is simply an invitation for you to repent and know his mercy. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 when he says, Do you suppose, O oh man, that you will escape the judgment of God? I mean, that's what Psalm 10 was wrestling with. It seems like the wicked think they're going to escape God's judgment. No. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up what? Wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you're not a Christian this morning, Psalm 10 is not telling you to moralistically work yourself out of being wicked. Psalm 10 is an invitation for you to respond to God's kindness to you through repentance by treasuring Jesus as your Savior, saving you from the wrath that you deserve for your sin. Contrary to what it might look like, God's people are not powerless against the tide of wickedness. Sometimes we might read a psalm like this and feel like, oh, I just wish there was like some path that we can walk that'll kind of help us triumph over evil in some magnificent way. But we're not powerless against the tide of wickedness. What can we do? Well, we can learn from what the author did in Psalm 10. How did he navigate the rocky reefs of this? What's, what the author did in Psalm 10 is that he prayed. Now, I know what you might be thinking, because originally when I was studying this, I thought, oh, that just sounds so kind of like, like flat, you know? Like, here's what you do to conquer injustice in the world. Pray. But before you get upset and just jump out, I, I want us to pause and just consider biblical prayer is never, is never taught as meaningless and insignificant ever in the Scriptures. If our response to this truth, where, where what the psalmist is doing is holding up to us boldness in prayer as a way that God's people navigate the rocky reefs of injustice in the world, it means we don't understand what scriptural prayer truly is or we don't properly understand to whom we pray. And so perhaps there's room for us to grow as a church family in our understanding of this role in the Christian life in a response to these injustices. In many circumstances, prayer is the only thing we can do. I mean, honestly, when you start scanning the headlines and you read about oppression and genocide and the horrors that are happening around the world, what do you do? You're like, I just don't read those newsletters anymore. Well, no, God's people, are, all people are equipped to engage in a meaningful way in that, even though it's across the world and how we pray. We do what, what the psalmist did in verse 12. We say in our prayer closet for the oppression going on in other places in the world, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. And we know to whom we pray. And we know what kind of God we pray to. And we trust him that he will make all things right. And Psalm 10 reminds us that for the Christian, prayer is often the best way to actively fight these tensions of faith found in the Christian life. 
Instead of letting these tensions cause you to be dismayed and cast away your faith, no, Christian friend, hang on tightly and pray. Prayer is one way that God's people cast their anxieties on their Heavenly Father. This is written about another way in Psalm 37. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. And what does that result in? Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. That psalm connects these two ideas directly. Be still and know, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. What is that? That's an expression of prayer. Now, I want to clarify, of course, right? Christians don't only pray. So we're not, we're not praying for God to act, right? And that means that we kind of are exonerating ourselves from being agents of God's justice and mercy in the world. No, certainly God, however God allows us and leads us, we should engage in those acts of mercy wherever we can. But in Psalm 10, it shows us that we will only have power to engage in those acts of mercy. And we will only probably think that those acts of mercy even matter because and after we have prayed, trusting in a God who arises, who helps the afflicted. And that leads us into the final section. This psalm starts with a cry to God in bewildered amazement. It turns into utters of boldness in prayer and it ends with, number three, confidence in God's rule. Confidence in God's rule. Verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. Here in this final section, it's, it's as if we've been sitting in the doctor's office and we're just scared of everything because everything looks blurry. We can't see clearly. Clearly, We don't, we don't know if that's a, a car driving by or, an, or, or something else, some monster that's going to get us. Everything's blurry and, and we can't see clearly. And it's as if finally here at the end of the psalm, the eye doctor finally puts the appropriate prescription in, lens in place, and corrects our faulty vision so we now we can see clearly. And injustices and wickedness in this life, it can easily blur our eyes. It troubles our minds so that we forget spiritual realities of who God is and what he has promised. We need a sovereign, decisive work of God's grace to help us see things with a perspective of faith. And that's where the psalm ends. The Lord is king forever and ever. This is essential because spiritual realities are not embraced or understood through mere physical observation, right? The scriptures tell us that Christians all through the ages have been a people who lived by faith. In fact, that phrase, the just, the righteous Christians shall live by faith, is repeated in numerous times throughout the scriptures. Do you live by faith? Would you let the angst in your heart that you share with this psalmist, by the way, would you let faith fill the space that that angst is making? What do you mean? I'm going to try to help us by breaking down these last verses here as we come to a conclusion. In these final verses, verses 16 through 18, we, we find some stabilizing truth. Now, and, that's, and that's where faith, faith grips biblical truth and depends upon God to be true to what he has promised. What stabilizing truth does Psalm 10 offer? Verse 16, he gives us this, Yahweh is king forever and ever. If you don't know what the term Yahweh means, if you're not a Christian here, Yahweh is, is why in the Bible, sometimes the word Lord is written with all capital letters. It wasn't a mistake. It's just that the translators, when they put it in English, are trying to convey to us that this is God's covenant-keeping name. It describes him in his totality as a God who is steadfast in loving loyalty. So what stabilizing truth do we have as we fight against the bewildered amazement of evil and injustice in this world? 
the Lord, Yahweh, is king forever and ever. So despite what it may look like, the Lord is king forever and ever. Whatever the next election brings about, and I'm sorry just to plunge all of your hearts into despair about if we have to go through that again, whatever the next election brings here or anywhere else in the world, Yahweh is king forever and ever. And Christians live with this stabilizing truth. We forget that he is eternal, but his justice reaches beyond the grave. It was God who said this, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So we trust him. What's another stabilizing truth? Well, verse 17, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. So what's this other stabilizing truth that Christians depend on with faith? We depend that, that the Lord hears the prayers of the afflicted. The Lord hears the prayers of the afflicted. So no matter what we feel, Christians are assured that God hears the cry of the afflicted. And there have been Christians all through the ages that have doubted that, that truth. Job wondered where God was. Why wouldn't God just give him a chance to make his case? And you may have felt yourself in a similar circumstance from time to time, maybe even today. But the Old Testament is full of examples of God hearing the affliction of his people, remembering his covenant to them and intervening on their behalf. Now, sometimes it seems God doesn't hear so that he must not care. But God's people must respond to those times with an unshakable faith in all that God has said he is for us in Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, this is another reason why the church is such a gift to God's people. Well, maybe, maybe you're in a situation in your walk of faith where you're just having trouble seeing clearly enough the, the promises of God through the fog of your discouragement and despair. What a ministry it is to be surrounded by God's people and hear them sing praise to God and remind you of who God is, despite what your circumstances are in this moment. There's a couple of occasions where in the scriptures we have stories recorded, and I'm going to, I, I, we're almost out of time, but I'm going to try to use these as illustrations here to help us understand that God isn't far off, even when it feels like he is. In John chapter 11, this is the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Now, in verse 5, it says this. It, remember, we're looking at it's, it, Martha and Mary, it seemed to them that God was far off, that he didn't care. And here's what happened. Now, Jesus loved Martha and his sister Lazarus. So, so John the Apostle wants you to be assured that God, that Jesus loved them. So all the actions flowing out of this are from his love. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. At this moment, Martha and Mary could start penning Psalm 10. God, where are you? Why are you so far off? Why are you hidden? Verses 14 and 15 of that same chapter, Jesus tells his disciples plainly, Lazarus has died. And again, this is troublesome. Imagine if you were hearing this as Martha or Mary, a loved one of Lazarus. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. This is, this is hard. But there's something more important than miraculous healing. What is it? So that you may believe. Do you realize that God gets glory when his people believe in him, even when circumstances defy that faith? Those are the stories we love to read about, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or is that, am I getting the right guys? I'm going into the furnace, fiery furnace. All right, thank you for nodding. There's times as a pastor where you've got lots of names in your heads and you say it and you're wondering, did I say the right names? Right, we love those stories. They went into the fire. Yes, they believed in God. And then you're in the fire like, woo, God, where are you? Why aren't you here? And friends, in those moments, we don't jettison faith. We understand that God is drawing us deeper to test him. He is, is he going to stand true for all that he has said all that he has promised he is for us through Jesus Christ. 
So John 11, verse 20, here's what happens. Martha heard that Jesus was coming. She went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Maybe Mary just wasn't ready to see Jesus yet. She knew that Jesus could have healed, but he lingered and delayed. Martha goes out. What does Martha say to Jesus? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was, right? It's her turn. She saw him. She fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Both of these women could have penned a version of Psalm 10 themselves. But yet we know the rest of the story. Jesus in his power, he did intervene for the afflicted. He raised Lazarus up. And I'm not saying that Jesus is going to raise your dead one up from the grave. But what's happening here is we are learning that there's something more important than getting the results that we pray for. It's the idea of this, that God is at work in mysterious and wonderful ways. And he is after our faith. Will we believe him? Another illustration is the disciples in the boat, right? They, they're, they finished um, the ministry in the evening in Mark chapter 4. Jesus says, we're going to go across the other side. So they get in the boat. They leave the crowd. They're in the boat and there are other boats with them. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. That's what perfect faith looks like. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? There the disciples are penning a version of Psalm 10 themselves. Don't you care? And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still? Here it is. No faith. So how do Christians navigate the rocky reefs of injustice and wickedness in the world? Faith. Faith. Faith that God is all that he has said he is for us through Jesus Christ. He is someone who strengthens the heart of the afflicted, verse 17 and 18. And this is, by the way, what Jesus did when he suffered through the worst injustice of all. He believed the Father. He believed the Father. Peter writes it this way, that when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did Jesus do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And we follow our king down that path. Justices collide. Wickedness hammers into us. We find ourselves in bewildered amazement and we find our hearts wondering, God, where are you? Why are you so far up? Why have you hidden your face? But because Jesus suffered because God did hide his face from Christ, we as Christians are assured that God will never hide his face from us. That penalty was taken by Christ. The only reason that we as Christians can live by faith against these horrible ways of bewildered injustice and wickedness is because Jesus faced the worst of all injustices ever perpetrated on earth. The sinless God-man was utterly forsaken when he died as a payment for sinful humans. And because Jesus was forsaken as our sin payment, we as Christians are assured that God will never forsake us. Have you embraced Jesus as your sin payment? Whenever Christians are tempted to think that God's forsaken us, or that he's far off, or he doesn't care, remember Jesus, his life, God with us, his death, God's sacrifice for us, his resurrection, God's life given to us. And we can be assured, no matter what we feel or how, we, how it strikes us, when we read about mischief and cursing and deceit of the wicked in Psalm 10, we remember Jesus who felt the effects of sinful mischief. 
He, he heard the curses and he endured their deceit. And he did this so that he might bring us to God. That's the gospel message. That's what forms the, the center of, of why we get together here on Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to sing loud praise to God because he is the one who rescues. And it is Him in him where our faith is anchored. So if you're not a Christian, how do you expect to stand under God's eternal, all-knowing judgment? Remember, you think that he doesn't care, it doesn't matter, but friend, you've just been shown from the scriptures he does. Where or to whom will you look for comfort in life? Psalm 10 is a reminder, it's an invitation for you, if you don't know Christ, to repent, turn from your treasuring of sin and instead treasure Jesus as your sole satisfaction, as your Lord and Savior. And Christian, you're gonna, we're going to live out the Christian faith in a sin-broken world. Some of us are in the middle of that brokenness in terrible ways. Some of us are, are going to head out into that in, in other ways. So as we do that, as we look at a world where it seems like wickedness sometimes goes unchecked, let's let the, the lament of Psalm 10 lead us to focus on our good Heavenly Father. To be assured and be reminded that all that He has promised for us They are not empty promises. He has sealed them for us through Christ. Don't live by only how you feel. Yes, feel deeply, sure, but also cry out in faith-filled prayer to the one who can make a difference in all of those circumstances. Trust him to lead you and how you can be an agent of mercy in a physical, tangible way to actually do some sort of earthly good into the sin-brokenness around us. And then may we as a church family hope in God and respond to the injustices and wickednesses in the world, not as a people who are full of dismay and lost hope ourselves, but as a people who, who show the glories of God through the suffering work of Jesus Christ. This is Psalm 10.